Welcome to the How Did You Get Into That podcast. Each week, we want to bring you an inspiring interview or encouraging message to help you find and do work you love. Now, here's your host, Grant Baldwin. What is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of How Did You Get Into That. My name is Grant. It's great to have you here with us. Hope you're doing well. I hope life is treating you good. I'm really excited to have you with us. We've got a great show for you today. I like to think they're all great, but again, honestly, I'm a little biased, but today is especially good, again, as they all are. It's like it's like trying to pick, pick your favorite child. You know, you, you just can't, or at least you shouldn't. So today is definitely a good episode, though. So today, we've got my friend Scott Durbin. Scott is in the band Imagination Movers, and if that name sounds slightly familiar to you, that may be the case if you watch any of the Disney Channel at all, because Imagination Movers is actually kind of a kid's band, kind of a family band. They actually had a show on Disney Junior, the network, for three years, and so we talk a lot about his story and journey about why they started a band, how many years it took to get their TV deal with Disney, how they just hustled to even get their first CD on air, what you can kind of learn from their own experience, and then also how they made that transition from working just in full-time world into being full-time imagination movers. So really good story here. Now, also make sure, as always, that you download the bonus material. If you like the interview, you want to hear more about Scott's story and journey, you can go to grantbaldwin.com slash 78, 78, and you can download the bonus material. We talked for a couple more minutes after the interview about how they finally got on Disney's radar, what that can teach you, and then also why they finally said yes to Disney after saying no twice. So make sure that you stick around for that. So again, you can download that bonus material at grantbaldwin.com slash 78. All right. Let's get into it, boys and girls. Here's my interview with Scott Durbin. Enjoy. What is up, my friends? Welcome to another episode of How'd You Get Into That? Today, we are joined by my friend Scott Durbin, who is a member of the band Imagination Movers. Now, you may have heard of them. You may not. If you have kids, there's a decent chance that you have because they are a kind of a, a band for kids. Is that the best way to describe it, Scott? Yeah, uh, kids and adults alike. You know, we're, I think Part of uh, our desire as a group is to really be attracted to families, to be kind of a shared experience. So, yeah. but kids and kids of all ages, two to ninety-nine. Nice, very good, very good. And I actually, I'd heard about you guys because I've got three little girls myself. I know we were talking a little bit offline that you had a couple seasons on Disney. So we've seen the show. We were at been to a couple of Disney parks a few years ago, and I think you guys may have had some stuff there. And so, yeah, we have been are familiar with the Imagination Movers and what you guys have been up to. But for someone that may not be familiar with it, what is it that exactly you guys? Do? Actually, we've been together now for about 12 years, and we started out as a concept for a local live-action kids show, and it was a music-based kids show. And from there, we started kind of playing music regionally. Disney Junior sort of took notice and contacted us, and we partnered with them, turned out to make three incredible seasons on the Disney Junior channel. And from there, we tour across the world and have a lot of fun kind of spreading our motto which is reach high, think big, work hard, have fun. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on is playing live music for families. When you come to see our show, you're not going to hear any tracks or lip syncing. You know, one of the big parts of our philosophy is to really demonstrate the creative process that kids can create, you know, that you can strum your hand across the guitar, make a sound. And I think that's an important thing for us is to just let no kids know that they can create music themselves. And that's such a niche of doing that. Again, it's just for families in general and at large and something that, you know, you can take your kids to some type of show that you can take your kids to or music that you can let your kids listen to that I guess in some ways is kind of that almost edutainment where you've got both the education side and the entertainment of the show. 
Yeah, I think that that's definitely a huge part of what we do. And, you know, as a teacher, I had taught 10 years before the mover started. And I think even as a teacher, you know, when you are educating, you have to sort of edutain them, you know, yeah. uh, entertain them and, and teach them at the same time. So that's definitely something that kind of helped us as we transitioned from our day jobs into full-time movers. Yeah. Let's backtrack a little bit. So was your career as a teacher before movers started? Yeah, I spent about 10 years teaching in uh, elementary education. And what I noticed, and this sort of is kind of the genesis of the movers as well, but what I noticed is in my 10 years, every you know year that I taught, I was noticing a level of creativity that was less than sufficient in my kids You know that I taught. I mean, if I were giving them a writing assignment, they were essentially regurgitating a SpongeBob episode or something like that. Mm-hmm. In essence, it sort of boiled down to, and I kind of used this metaphor, it was like, you know, picking up a stick. For a lot of the kids, all it was was a stick. Whereas if you know, you use your imagination or use your creativity, it could be a baton, it could be a pretend flute, it could be anything except a stick. And so part of what happened is the imagination movers, we all lived in the same neighborhood. Uh, We all started having families at the same time. I was teaching. Dave was an architect. Rich was a journalist. Smitty was a firefighter. And what happened was around that time when we started having families, Fred Rogers passed away. And Fred Rogers was a huge inspiration. I love the fact that he carried himself with such an integrity and his caringness and sincerity were, you know, for all intents and purposes, that which were were a model for me, essentially. And what happened is when you, you know, when you start having kids, you're teaching and you notice this decreasing level of creativity in your kids and you have friends who live in the same neighborhood go over to their birthday parties when their kids are young. And, and I was like, you know, we need to come up with a local live action kids show, sort of like what Mr. Rogers did in Pittsburgh and do something about this, you know, not only because when you become a dad like you, you're sort of like thrown into this world of children's programming, whether right. it be children's music or movies, and you're evaluating this and you're seeing what out there is good. And the two big things that we noticed, me personally as a teacher, and then us as a collective, where there were no real people in kids' television. It was all puppets or animation. Right. And then there was those local live-action kids' shows that a lot of us grew up with. I know here in New Orleans in the South, we had Popeye and Pals. And you know, it seems like every little place around the United States had sort of these local live-action kids' shows. And so we came up with an idea, and it was called Imagination Movers. And what it was was like blue-collar brainstormers that would essentially model the problem-solving that you can – brainstorm ideas, some that would work, some that that didn't. And it was all music based. And our first kind of suitor was the local PBS affiliate. We actually went there and pitched the idea for the show and they loved it. And having taught for 10 years, you know, we created a mission statement. We created an educational foundation. And a lot of times when you're in meetings like that, they're going to ask you questions like, why does this guy have this? Or what is what happens here? And we were just basically answering every question they threw at us. Because we did our work, you know, we really did our homework to make sure that, and this is sort of a lesson for life, we gave them no opportunity to say no to us, to reject the idea. And we had done so much work to make sure that that it had no holes. And they were blown away and they loved it, but they didn't have any money. And so what they encouraged us to do was create our own content. And so we did that. It was a music-based show. So what happened is, we started playing shows to really generate income so that we could create our own content. And we did that 
and basically created our first DVD, which was called Stir It Up. And we created a CD as well called Good Ideas and brought it to Louisiana Public Broadcasting, which sort of kind of was the umbrella for the state and found a champion there. And she put our videos on as interstitials between the PBS shows. And we started getting a regional following. And that Louisiana following actually became the sort of the Southeast following. We started really kind of getting our name out because, you know, we were playing festivals like Jazz Fest and Austin City Limits Music Festival and and playing anything that we could. And, you know, we have good stories and bad stories about places we played and things we've done, you know, that kind of humble you and that are humorous. But we got our name out and we got our name out so much that Disney Junior took notice. And so let me jump in. You covered a, a, sure. a lot of info there. I mean, it sounds like it's got to be just a bit surreal, you know, of, of the entire journey and ride there. So let's backtrack a little bit. Whenever sure. you're teaching. So you said you taught for 10 years. Yep. Taught for 10 years, elementary education. Did you like it? Was it something like when you first start talking about the idea of doing movers? Is it something like I got to get out of teaching or is it more just like, yeah, this will be a fun little side thing or where's your head at at that point? Yeah, that's a great question. I think part of it was, you know, I taught for 10 years. I taught six years in the public school systems and then I had taught four years at an independent school in New Orleans. And I think, you know, having taught 10 years and just noticing this lack of creativity in kids sort of just bugged me. And then being a new father, I was like, you know, instead of lamenting this, uh, why don't I do something about it? And that was really sort of the, you know, the thing that kind of got you off the couch and out the door and, and you know, and work and uh, rolling up your sleeves, so to speak, uh, to make it happen. And I guess I just, you know, the, the creative process is one that, and I think it was a culmination of things. And if, if I'm talking too much, don't hesitate to stop me. But it was things like when one of the parishes which is a county in the state of Louisiana. We don't call our counties. We call them parishes. You gotta play it one differently. of the parishes basically, yeah. One of the parishes stopped recess. And what they did is they had these things called brain breaks. Mm. And I was just thinking, gosh, you know, you're stopping play. And think about all the problem solving, all the things that go on when kids just go outside and play. So I think those kinds of things were sort of just dragging me down from a personal standpoint or a professional standpoint and a personal and I just wanted to do something about it. And, you know, sort of taking a nod from the likes of Fred Rogers and Captain Kangaroo, I was like, hey, let's do something about it. Or at least, you know, strike out trying. So how do you decide, though, which things to try and not try? Because, I mean, there, there's a lot of things that, like, anybody could look at in the world and look at and be like, yeah, that bothers me. But does it bother me enough to actually do something? So, you, I mean, you could look at the, the recessing or you could look at children's programming or anything and be like, you know what? I wish that there was more live action stuff or I wish there was people and stuff. But it's one thing to, like, just be annoyed by it on a Saturday morning. It's another thing to be like... I think I'm the one to actually do it. So like, what was it that almost like, I guess, pushed that initial domino to make you say like, no, 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 let's not just talk about it. Let's not just gripe or moan about it, but I'm going to be the one that's actually going to do something about it. Well, I think part of it was circumstance and just sort of relationships that you made. The local PBS affiliate that we essentially pitched our first idea to, I had actually done some commercials for them when they did their fundraising events and they do like an international beer tasting festival here in New Orleans. And then they do like a chocolate festival so that they can generate income for the PBS affiliate. And I would go in and because I had a friend that worked there and they would always like, Hey, you want to come and be in this spot? And I would go do it. So I had this kind of unique relationship and the fact that it was PBS and, you know, and their philosophy on shows and what have you, because of all the other things that started happening in my life and, you know, both personally and professionally, 
it was sort of this weird kind of like, you know, hey, let's do a local live action kid show ourselves. And guess what? I have a contact at the local PBS affiliate. And of course, the guys that were part of this whole process, we all lived in this same neighborhood. A lot of them had music or entertainment backgrounds. They weren't doing those jobs. You know, Dave was obviously an architect. But at one time in college or post-college, he was doing some stand-up comedy. Hmm. And Rich had played music, you know, in college and high school. And now he was a journalist, but he still had that in his background. And of course, Smitty and I, we go back way back to middle school together. And, you know, we played in little groups here in high school and stuff like that, music groups. So we all had this sort of background of entertainment. And it was just sort of this kind of uh, providence of us all coming together in this unique, weird way and living in the same neighborhood that you take like a 10 minute mover tour of our neighborhood in New Orleans. And it was just all these convergence of events that sort of folded and allowed us to kind of pursue this sort of wild hair of a dream. Did you, were you the one that first kind of pitched it at the other three guys? Yeah, I basically, at my son's second birthday party, which was a Lawrence Welk inspired party, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, I had this friend at uh, the local uh, PBS show and you know, would you guys be interested in doing this? And I sort of kind of shared an idea of what I had in mind. And of course, when you have four minds working together, it really comes into shape. And initially, my idea was being the physical manifestation of the creative process for a child. Yeah. And if you watch the show, it's really, it's essentially that sort of seed of an idea, but expressed in a different way. And, and of course, instead of the physical manifestation of the creative process of the child, you know, the idea warehouse that we work on the television show, that's essentially the brain. It has all these wonderful rooms that you can go and go to and anything can happen. Yeah. And initially that first kind of seed of an idea, you know, it was sort of like this weird, you know, very beginning storyboard of this kid kind of looking at a donut and a carrot and which one does he want to eat? And <laughs> sort of, you know, once he's evaluating that, the gears start turning in his brain and he starts going through these kind of events. And, you know, it was our idea, that first seed of like four guys checking into a warehouse and kind of going, punching the clock. And we would just act out what that kid was sort of in that internal dialogue he was having about which to choose the donut or the carrot. And so that was sort of kind of where it started. But, you know, when you have four guys and four really creative guys and passionate guys working on something, it evolves and it changes and it becomes what a lot of people saw on the television show. I mean, I have to credit Disney tremendously because probably about 85% of what that show evolved and what you saw on the television was our idea from the get-go. And so that they allowed it to be that and didn't really micromanage it right. is to their credit. And I couldn't be prouder with the results because it's a fun show to watch. And you know, I think one of the greatest legacies I feel as part of that show is kind of introducing the concept of brainstorming into the toddler's vernacular. You know, yeah. It's like Brainstorming is something that you can really do when you have a problem. You can think of ideas and it could be some ideas work and some don't. But, you know, ultimately you got to sort of try it out and, and, and learn. Once you're first kind of playing with the idea and everybody that you're at your own two-year-old's birthday party and you have that conversation with those guys, they're on board. You talk to the PBS affiliate, they're on board with it. Are you thinking like this is just a fun little outlet this is a fun little hobby on the side or are you thinking like i think we might actually have something here like how long did it take before you kind of got to that point i think you know when we started writing songs that essentially became our first album i had this just feeling and essentially you know rich collins and i at the very beginning were sort of like the two kind of 
guys who really carry the torch at the beginning. And, and obviously when you're dealing with four guys, there's ebbs and flows with like what each guy's strength and weaknesses are. Right. And once you recognize that, you can make the whole machine work as, you know, so it might be that at the beginning we were the strongest to drive the machine. That's not to say that the other two didn't contribute. So, but the thing was, is that I think Rich and I really early on knew we had something here that was kind of special and we were tenacious. We were bulldogs with, once we got that first CD and we actually had a product, we did two things that really changed the game for us. And we had that sort of feeling that drives you and motivates you. And the two things that we did was we sent that CD to anybody and everybody that would play it. And luckily for us at that time, satellite radio had started becoming, you know, like XM was on the map and it, yeah. it was still beginning, but it was still a national platform and they had a kid's show. So, you know, naturally we became great friends with Kenny Curtis there. Mindy got our stuff to them and helped in any way, shape or form that we could to get our music out. We would do things like contact college radios and, and send them our CDs. We went so far as to contact hospitals in the UK that would play music in their children's wards. And we would send them the CD. I mean, there was no stone that we left unturned. And so that was definitely one thing we were super tenacious about. The other thing was, is we had the cojones to go up to the Javits Center in New York, which is like this big toy convention center like if, if you started a game tomorrow you know a tabletop game and you wanted to sell it well you would go to javits because that's where all the buyers all the independent toy stores around the country would go to javits and they'll buy you know what they're going to buy from mattel or whatever the store is yeah or you know whatever the company is we went up there with essentially a cd one cd one dvd and a coloring book <sighs> and we got a booth at javits and i mean you know talk about kind of like local yokels but we made so many contacts because of that and networked and met different executives with labels for kids music and stuff like that that we didn't even know existed we just sort of took a leap of faith and i mean when you think about going up to javits and you know we brought our wives it was like you know it was a massive undertaking the cost of getting that there you know i don't know if financially at that time it was we were definitely in the red but it was this risk that we took and we collectively took and it paid off because we made some really wonderful contacts. We found distributors through independent, you know, toy stores. But it, it, it took basically that risk to say, hey, you yeah. know what, I'm just going to go. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things there that you said that I really liked is, I mean, there's a lot of people in this similar spot where it's like, I've got this idea, I've got this thing, I think it might work. And, you know, what you guys did, the kind of hustle that it took to get the thing off the ground, because it's not like you were, it sounds like you weren't doing this full time. Y'all four had full time jobs, right? That's correct. Yep. So yeah. this is, fact, this whenever is, whenever we brainstormed, we were doing it after the kids were bit, to bed. Yeah. I mean, so this is not like a, this is my full time gig. This is weekends, mornings, evenings, like any free moment we can to work on this thing. So just taking the time. And so therefore you're sacrificing time, maybe away from hobbies or spending money on other things that maybe you'd want to, but you knew that that's part of what it was going to take to get the thing off the ground. But then from also from the financial standpoint of, you know, going to a major trade show, which I know I have some ideas on what booth space is on that. And it's not cheap at all. No. Plus, <laughs> plus if you got four guys, plus well, you got eight people going to New York, it's not cheap to go to New York. And so, and plus any marketing materials. And so, and then shipping CDs or DVDs to 
and literally all over the world yep. on something that you're not guaranteed squat. Like you could have sent it to everyone that they would have been like, this is adorable and we're not going to do anything with it. Exactly. But like, that's what it takes for some things just to get going. And that's the work that it sounds like you were willing to put in in order to get it off the ground. We're, you're, you're totally right because you know, there's one thing that I loved doing and that was playing baseball. And I played, you know, in a, I played baseball in, in high school and college. And when I hit 30, I played in a men's senior hardball league that, you know, for 30 and over. And when we started movers, you know, I stopped playing and not because I wanted to, but because like you said, I mean, you had to put the time and energy because, you know, ultimately we all believed in the project and you had to do it to make it happen because, you know, it's like, you know, it's the whole philosophy. Like when you go in, out and you play a concert and you play for 10 people or you play for a thousand people. Well, you don't know who those 10 people are. You might yeah. think, God, nobody's here. But one of those 10 people could be an executive for some, you know, company or their brother-in-law is, is, works for such and such. You just never know. And so you never take for granted the people who actually come out and, and come and see your concert. You, you know, they're spending time, whether it's 10 people or a thousand you just make it work. Yeah, that's so true. I, I remember as a motivational speaker, one of my first big breaks was I spoke at this random, tiny, tiny little conference and, you know, just a handful of people there and just got paid peanuts. But the wife of from the national office of the like national conference planner was there and she loved it and told her husband about it. And, you know, he turned around and booked me for a significant event. And yeah, some of those just like little types of moments that you have, but you won't have those moments if you're not willing to put yourself in to those types of opportunities. So how long are you doing it before you get to a point where you start to really gain some traction and to a point where you're starting to quit jobs and this has really become a full-time thing? Well, you know, we started playing live concerts and of course we were doing it on weekends when we could. We, I think each guy had, were, were in different situations where they could sort of devote more time or less time. Rich was the first mover to actually go full-time where we could sustain him and his family with what we were doing because you know we basically for the first two or three years we were playing any show that we could get right i remember we played a show that paid us 150 dollars yep and all four of us were thinking gosh we made 150 dollars <laughs> we could not believe it you know yep. uh, now if you were to look at cost effective like the gas to get out to that little event or something like that you know it probably was a push but we thought we were just stealing from them you know but we would go and play birthday parties. We'd go and do, do – we played – and then, of course, when we played the event, people said, hey, did you see this band? They were really good. And, the, you know, the word of mouth spread. People were, you know, talking about us. We were playing bigger and bigger events. But, you know, the, we had always had humbling situations. So never – no matter when you might have thought a peak was, there was always a value to remind you and ground you that it really is about the journey. It's not the destination. It really is about the journey. And so – you know, I remember playing a backyard party once and we arrive <laughs> on the scene and the backyard is covered with dog poop and <laughs> glamorous. Thinking, I, exactly. It's like, OK, you know, we can either run around in this or we can pick it up. And we, there we are shoveling uh, poop. And before we play and, you know, that's not humbling to a certain degree if you're a 30 year old man with a family <laughs> and you're, you know, in the in the backyard. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff we did. And we didn't think really twice about it, you know. But, you know, we played enough of those shows and we had sort of took advantage of the contacts that we had at Javits and what have you to start distributing our music. 
that Rich really was the first one to say, hey, you know what, I'm going to devote my time into this. And he was in a situation that allowed him to do that financially. And then I was the second and then Dave and then Smitty. And really the big changer, the game changer was Katrina. Mm-hmm. And then that sort of changed the whole, any reason to not delve into it was taken away because of Katrina. How so? Well, for example, like, you know, I was still teaching. Katrina happened. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when Katrina happened, basically the school had to downsize. So I was a specialist there. So they, you know, all the specialists, whether you're a computer teacher or an art teacher, you were go. And so a lot of, you know, Dave's architecture firm went under because people were being relocated. And part of this whole story was that before Katrina, we were essentially destined to go the PBS route. And that was the route that we really wanted to. And part of that was because of ownership, of content. Disney had come and saw us at Jazz Fest and they had really started talking to us. But when you negotiate with Disney, they need to own everything or at least the vast majority of it. Yeah. And we didn't want to give it up. And we actually said no twice to Disney, which we didn't realize that people just never say no. <laughs> uh, yeah. But and it was our, our idea that we would go through the PBS route and we were on this kind of cusp because we had a champion at Louisiana Public Broadcasting. And what happened is she was the head of a, like a five state consortium. So our videos were about to go to 10% of the country, which we felt we could parlay into a good you know, situation for ourselves. But what happened is Katrina stopped that, and the LPB infrastructure was basically taken over by a lot of the networks in New Orleans when Katrina happened. So it pushed back our timeline about 18 months. That was just too much with not having a job or what have you to sustain ourselves. But what we did have on the books was this offer from Disney. And so, you know, when Katrina happened, we were like, okay, do we want 100% of maybe nothing or a smaller percentage of something? And so you never knew what the end result was at the time. But we, you know, we made that decision to go with Disney. Wow. All right. So a couple things there. One, I'm, I want to get to the Disney piece, but I'm curious about once this is starting to gain some traction and you're starting to leave jobs, what are people saying to you? Because... Outside looking in, I got to think that there's going to be some people that are like, you're leaving your job to do what? To play in a, a band for kids or families? And it, it's called what? what? What kind of reaction are you getting from people? I assume it's, you know, it's probably some mixture of supportive and some mixture of raised eyebrows wondering what you're thinking. I would probably say the great thing about being in New Orleans is there was such an embracing of the whole idea and concept that you never really had many people saying, hey, are you crazy to leave your job? I'm sure they might have thought it, but they never articulated it. Right. But there was always support for whatever we did. You know, we would play a show and people would come out of the woodworks to support us. Or, you know, if we dropped off a box of 20 CDs at, you know, the independent toy store down the block, they were sold out immediately and they called us back for more. So there was this wonderful support that we had from everybody in our city and in our state as we, you know, as our name became more and more out there. So that I think, you know, enabled us to sort of kind of let go of the brand and not worry about the results. How long were you guys doing your thing before you finally signed on with Disney? Probably about three years. Okay. 
Because I think that's an important thing for people to note is, you know, lots of one thing we talk a lot about on this show is we look at like the A to Z spectrum of a career and we look at Z because Z is sexy. That's the mountaintop. That's where you're playing. You're, you're right. You're with Disney. You know, you're signed on and you have your own show and you're playing in front of thousands of people and in arenas and you're living this dream life, you know, so to speak. But people don't see when you're shoveling poop in a backyard for a kid's birthday party, you know? And so like the amount of work that goes into it just to get to the point, like it's not like, hey, we kick around and we talk about this idea and then randomly Disney calls a week later. It's three weeks of hustling and grinding before you even have a chance at Disney. You're right. And actually, I probably should backtrack. It, it probably was a total of five years. It was like, because, you know, we always sort of have our date of when we started was 2002, and we signed in April of 2007. But, you know, one of the things was is, is just knowing the idea was going to work. I guess there was just some kind of maybe we convinced. I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't question that kind of gut feeling. Uh, you sort of just trust it. And we were fortunate. But, yeah, you're right. It's not uh, – there were some definitely some steps along the way where you're – you know, there was always – especially when you're trying to make it happen. You know, you would always have little situations with – hey, you know – I gave y'all CD to this person or that person. You're like, oh goodness, you know, that might turn into something and, and yeah. maybe it doesn't. Right. Or, you know, you have during your little kind of trials and tribulations, you have champions that come along and then they disappear. But as long as you stay the course and which we did, you know, it just happened for us. And like you said, it, there was a lot of work. It's not like Disney made us or created us. You know, we existed well before Disney. Well, I want to get into some of the Disney stuff, but we're going to save that for the bonus material, though. Sure. So let's wrap up with this. For someone that wants to find out more about you or check you guys out, or is like, I think I've heard of these Imagination Movers. I've got a kid who's talked about it. So where can we go to learn more about you guys and what you guys are up to? You can check out ImaginationMovers.com. We're actually very active on our Facebook page. So if you you know search Imagination Movers on Facebook, if you happen to do that, iMovers on Twitter. Facebook's a great, great opportunity. You know, we do a lot of interaction with fans on Facebook because it's such an easy interface mm -hmm. to do that. But like just finding where we're going to be, what cities we're going to be playing concerts in, imaginationmovers.com is the best place to go. And if you ever want to email any one of the movers, you know, we're despite playing in different places, you know, we've gone, we played in Japan, we played in Europe, we played in States, Canada. We're pretty mom and pop. You know, if you send an email to scott at imaginationmovers.com, I'm going to be the guy who gets it and I will reply to you, you know? Nice. I think that's part of what has made us so successful is that when we go and play concerts, and we always said this with it when it comes to entertaining children, kids, they don't fake smiles. Right. They don't have an agenda where they're going to like, you know, shake their head yes when they really mean no. They'll let you know what works and what doesn't. And I think, you know, we've always been sincere about why we do what we do. We've always encouraged kids to do our motto, reach high, think big, work hard, and have fun. We've always cared for the fan who takes the time to go out and see us and understand as dads, that means getting the kids you know, dressed and getting them in the car and driving and finding a place to park when it's 30 miles away. And coming to, you know, we understand that, that sacrifice and that desire to you know, have that shared experience with your child, and we don't take it for granted. And I think... People who come and see us and play in concert see that on our faces. You know, we've been doing this for 12 years and we still love doing it. And we know we're doing something meaningful. And I think that hopefully resonates with people, you know, that we're not actors that were kind of cobbled together 
to do something to make money or something right. you know cynical but right. then you know we did it for the right reasons and we still continue to do it today for the right reasons and and like i said you know we're we're pretty down to earth if you email rich he's going to be the guy to get that email cool Good stuff, man. Scott, we really appreciate the time and really appreciate you uh, you sharing your story and journey. Hey, people, make sure you also not only check out what they're up to, check out imaginationmovers.com, but make sure that you download the bonus material. We've got a couple more good questions for them that we're going to get into. So, uh, Scott, we will catch you over there. Sounds great. Boom. Hope you enjoyed that chit chat with Scott Durbin of the Imagination Movers. Uh, love their story. Love their journey. And I personally, I remember watching the show and I've got three little girls. And so we have watched the Imagination Movers many times. So it was cool to connect with Scott and hear a little bit more of the behind the scenes of how the proverbial sausage is made. Although that does sound disgusting. Hey, also make sure that you download that bonus material. You, again, you can go to grantbaldon.com slash seven, eight. Again, grantbaldon.com slash seven, eight. Scott and I chat for a few more minutes about how they got on Disney's radar, uh, why they finally said yes to Disney. And one of my favorite parts was one of the most surreal moments they had as a band. So uh, really a couple, two great stories from that, that you're not going to want to miss out. Again, you can download that at grantbaldon.com slash seven, eight. All right. Hey, if you like this interview, if you like this episode, uh, one of the things I want to do from time to time is just point you to a bunch of other episodes. You know, we've got over 80 episodes in the archives right now, a bunch that maybe you've heard, a bunch that maybe you have missed if you're just catching up and joining us. So I don't want you to miss out on anything. I want you to make sure that you're caught up, that you catch the things that are relevant and applicable to your world. So if you haven't already, make sure you go to episode 48 with my buddy Lou Mangello. Lou is actually, he was a lawyer for a little while and decided his passion was really all about all things Disney. And so uh, Lou ended up quitting his lawyer job and is now a full-time Disney expert. So that's a great episode you can check out in episode 48. Also, if you're interested in just the TV world, uh, make sure you stop by episode 54 with my buddy Aaron Nolan. Aaron is a TV anchor and in a prime network. And so if you're interested in the TV production world, make sure you check that out, episode 54. Uh, Hey, as always, feel free to email me, grant to grantbaldon.com. If there's anything that I can do for you, hit me up on social media, um, Facebook, Instagram, TwitFace, any of those places that you want, I will probably be there. Make sure you subscribe to the show if you haven't already, just within that the app or wherever you're listening to the podcast right now, you can hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss a single episode that comes out. So I just, I want you to be up to speed on uh, what's going on. I don't want you to miss out on anything. Hey, next week, we've got some great episodes for you as well. Excited to uh, share them with you on Tuesday. We're going to have an interview with a uh, ultra marathon runner. This guy runs massive distances just for the heck of it. And if you're in the running community, this is a guy who you're going to be familiar with. So you're not going to want to miss that. Also, we're going to talk to a guy who has actually uh, planned events for the White House. So how do you get into that? So we're going to talk about that. That's all next week on the How'd You Get Into That podcast. So that wraps up this episode. Thanks for hanging out with us. Really appreciate it. If there's anything I can do for you again, feel free to email me anytime. Until then, we'll talk to you next time. You're awesome. Thanks for listening to the How Did You Get Into That podcast with Grant Baldwin. Don't forget to visit grantbaldwin.com for all the show notes and links discussed in today's episode. We'll see you next time.